I have to keep reminding myself I'm not an imposter. I belong. And so whether if you're just starting a business or you've amassed a, a nice amount of assets, it doesn't matter. You belong. You are worthy to be heard. You need to be heard. You, Your voice is important and your voice is life-changing because it came from you. You are listening to Messy in the Middle, the show here to help you navigate the messy blend that is life and business today. I'm your host, Haley Johnson, and my guests and I are here to dish out all the hot takes, big wins, and seriously messy moments that come with being an entrepreneur. So grab another cup of coffee, you know you want to, and let's get into it. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Messy in the Middle. Joining me today, I have Nikosha Anderson of Anderson Law Firm here to help you get the business knowledge and protection solutions you need to thrive, grow your business, and define your success. Nikosha, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So, Nikosha and I met in a Facebook group actually a little over a year ago when I was basically in panic mode because (laughs) I needed to trademark the name Propagy because everyone was scaring me that I would lose my business if I didn't. But other than the amazing trademark special you had going on at the time, I actually don't know a whole lot about your business or your story. So why don't you tell our listeners and me a little bit about yourself and how you came to run your own practice and be in that Facebook group during my moment of panic? (laughs) I am so thankful that you are no longer in a state of panic and you are a lawfully, federally registered owner of a trademark asset. And I believe, and I will die on this heel with Vaseline and Nike Air Max on, (laughs) and I will fight anybody any day. All businesses need to secure and rightfully own all of their income producing assets. That includes their brand names, their brand um, logos, their taglines. That also includes not just focusing on trademarks, but focusing on copyright protection as well as contract protection. But we'll get into that. (laughs) But a little bit about me. So again, my name's Nikosha and entrepreneurs hire me when they want to secure their income producing assets. I started my business back in 2013 when I got out of law school and then I left private practice to go back and work for the government. And then I left the government to come back to private practice. And in that little jarred timeline, that jarred timeline there, I was always surrounded by business owners as my parents, especially my dad, started a business when I was 13 years of age. He owned a logistics company and he had a way of doing business that got the loads in a lot faster than anything and in fuel efficient. And he got a, a beautiful contract from a Fortune 100 company. And so our life changed. Things got you know, on the up and up. This is what most entrepreneurs look for. We get a great opportunity and our lifestyle tries to change and things get better, but they get a little harder too. Well, my father's company got on the radar of the logistics manager of this Fortune 100 company and they called in a meeting and they wanted to see how my dad was dispatching his loads and how his loads was always coming in faster and more fuel inflation and all these things. Ultimately, they data mined my dad and um, figured out how he was doing what he was doing. And then like six months later, we lost the contract magically. We lost it. And so fast forward, getting more educated, going to law school, learning things. 
it hit me when I was in a class one time. I was like, wait, this is what happened to my dad. My dad was data mined of what was his secret sauce, Mm -hmm. right? In his business. And so it was then that I made a commitment that I didn't want other business owners, other entrepreneurs to have what happened to my dad happen to them. So then I nosedived deeper into intellectual property, started learning more and more. And that is my core mission is to ensure that entrepreneurs are protecting what's rightfully there so they are not robbed. And so we've been doing this for a little while and we've been changing the lives and securing assets of entrepreneurs all over the United States. That's amazing. So it sounds like you were already in law school when you kind of got the bug for intellectual property and realized like, oh, this is what happened to my dad and that like lit the fire under you. What was it about the law that made you want to study it in the first place? My dad. Okay. So my dad passed away uh, of uh, this year um, in 2022. And so... I was going to school in a computer background. So I was always been in data technology, information technology, and I wanted to be a data scientist. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to apply that and data mine because I'm nosy. And my dad and my mom always said, why don't you go do something where your best skill set is? And I'm nosy. So I was like, why not? I'm nosy and I do market research. It's the same thing. (laughs) So you you get it. I found my people. And so uh, one day my dad was like, well, I don't really understand what is a data scientist. I tried to explain it. He didn't get it. He was like, well, you don't want to be a lawyer or a doctor, you know, classic. These are the careers I know. Mm -hmm. These are the careers. And so I was like, I don't know, dad. And one day I took a um, technology contracts or something in the law type class. And then I just lit up. I Mm -hmm. was like, this is it. This is the life for me. And then I applied to go, as they say, the rest is history. I applied to go to law school and the rest is history. So I became a lawyer because of my dad. I entered the field of practice also because of my dad. That's so nice and like such a touching story. What about, I guess, you graduated law school and you started your own practice and then Mm -hmm. you went back to work for the government and then you started your own practice kind of again. Mm -hmm. What gave you the confidence, the gall, the gumption, if you will? to come fresh out of law school and be like, you know what? I don't need any of this big law stuff. I can do it on my own. Mm -hmm. So I say mentorship is what gave me the confidence and the battery pack, as they say, in my back. Uh, My mentor was one of the founding general counsels of Disney and Universal Studios. So I always tell people, I live where Mickey Mouse lives. Mm -hmm. So we are very big on um, tourism and theme park and entertainment and that whole thing. So when I latched onto my mentor and he started teaching me things, it became easier to have that, that guiding post in the background in case I needed some different direction. So that gave me the confidence as well as being surrounded by business owners for majority of my life mm-hmm. and watching the highs and lows of entrepreneurship that they don't really talk about on Al Gore's internet also <laughs> gave me some security because uh, it's not too much I haven't seen from not being able to make payroll to getting a great contract to having to fire people or not knowing what direction to take or 
not paying yourself because mm-hmm. you need to pay your contractors or your employees. I get it. I understand you being on a ramen diet and eating grilled cheese sandwiches. So like it was food, but you still, the profit and loss statement may say, I made a hundred thousand dollars, but you go look in your bank account, you barely got $500 to your name. And you like, how is this possible? And it's all about knowing business, knowing the ebbs and flows of business. And once you figure those things out and get a trusted source around you, it will make things a lot easier. So that kind of gave me the confidence of knowing like, I got these trusted people around me who have the experience and I can ask them questions and I know that the advice I'm going to get from them will Mm -hmm. be sound. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was going to ask you if you ever felt like any sense of imposter syndrome being a younger, newer business owner helping older business owners or more experienced business owners. But it kind of sounds like through your experience and your mentors and just your upbringing of getting to watch your dad go through the messy middle, whether you felt imposter syndrome or not, probably have more experience than a lot of other fresh law school grads. I will say yes, because I was working hours that most average high schoolers wasn't working. So like I said, we had, my mom is an accountant. So between my mom and my dad's businesses, baby, I was the (laughs) admin, the secretary, the gopher. I was everything in a business. And oftentimes children of color or immigrants or migrant families or whatever, the children in those families learn how to be the best CEOs that people have ever will meet in your life. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, children have to learn how to translate business documents for parents. They have to know how to navigate just the systems in the, in, in the world we live in. But oftentimes, that experience is not translated well to paper. Mm-hmm. So then you struggle trying to say, I know how to do this. I have ran the systems in my house since I was 15. Right. I've been doing X, Y, and Z since whatever. So imposter syndrome is very real, even though you may have a trusted source. But it actually is a way, I read something, I don't remember the source, what um, I read a lot, but one lady uh, author wrote that imposter syndrome was a, a social construct to keep people of color or lesser means to believe that they're not wanted in spaces. Because mm-hmm. the whole identifying thing of imposter, I'm not an imposter, I'm a real life human being, and I have thoughts and ideas that are valid and are worth sharing. So the whole construct of imposter syndrome, it's just, if you think about it, you're not an imposter. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. I definitely, I want to look into that uh, quote that you just said. Once I find the, I'll try to find the article. It was riveting. I was just like, yeah, I am not, but it's just the lack of confidence and being shot down multiple times. There have been times I was in courtrooms and yelled at judges. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was dismissed from an entire division because I stood up for my client and nearly went to jail. I was taking stuff out of my pockets as I was getting yelled at because I just knew I was getting uh, going to jail that day. Oh my gosh. Um, I have gotten transferred because I didn't get along with people. Like I... If I have to defend something and I believe passionate in it, I am going to defend you to the very end. If I believe that 
the law is not rightfully doing something that the law says it should do, whether you did it or not, because I've handled criminal cases, I've handled family law cases, I've handled cases where um, parents have gotten their children taken away. I've handled cases where a CEO was selling their business from $100 million. Mm-hmm. I've defended brands. I've done the whole nine yards. So I, I use all of those experiences collectively to harness them when I need them. So I have to keep reminding myself I'm not an imposter. I belong. And so whether if you're just starting a business or you've amassed a, a nice amount of assets, it doesn't matter. You belong. You are worthy to be heard. You need to be heard. You, your voice is important and your voice can, is life-changing because it came from you. I love that. I think I just got the uh, title of the episode somewhere in there. So I had to not, I had to jot that down. No worries. <laughs> so you went from running your own practice, being an independent lawyer to then working for the government. What mm-hmm. inspired you to A, make the change from being on your own to working with someone else and B, to then choose the government as that next step for you? Well, I always tell people it's all about relationship building. So, and I learned that at an early age because of watching my parents in business. So when I was in high school, I was super smart. And I was a kid that would get in trouble because I would get done with my work early. And so there was a collective group of teachers. And I just think teachers need to make a million dollars. All teachers need to make a million dollars. And janitors, like everybody in the school district, because they are doing the Lord's work. But there was a group of school professionals who saw something in me. And so they started, uh, they would put me in student assistant class periods, or they would ask me to help them file, or they would ask me to do stuff, like after I finished my Mm -hmm. work, of course. And so as a result of me building those relationships, when I turned 19, I ended up getting a job at the school system. So here I am, 19, working at a school as like a clerk. Basically, the stuff that I was doing as a student now, I'm actually getting the paycheck for. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm getting retirement and, and full benefits. Like, this is like a whole new world for me. Mm-hmm. And so I worked that job and then I went off to go to law school. So I always tell people it's easier to go back to the government if you're a former government employee because they don't have to indoctrinate you into culture. Mm-hmm. You already know what it's like to be a government employee and all the, the ins and outs, good or bad, that come with that. So it's just easier. Once you're in, it's just a little easier to get back in. Mm-hmm. So that's why I went back because my family grew. Um, we had a beautiful baby girl and I needed to secure consistent health care for her mm-hmm. based upon her needs. And so I knew the best way for me to do that would be to go back to government. Okay, gotcha. And so then how long were you with the government before deciding to go back out on your own again? Six years. And then um, my, yeah, I was there for about six years, developed beautiful relationships and learned a lot about myself because I didn't have the desire to be a litigator or courtroom attorney Mm -hmm. in law school. I ran completely and utterly away from it. And so if you would have told me I would have been a litigator in court every day, I would have cussed you out and told you you lying <laughs> to me. But there I was every day in court with different judges. And it it was the best thing that ever happened to my legal career, 
because it taught me skills that I don't think I would have developed had I just stayed in transactional for that period of time. Mm, Gotcha. So when you decided to then go back out and start off on your own again, what was that decision like for you? Scary as hell. I was, um, I was motivated by forces that was outside of my control. So I got sick really, really bad to the point where my body was literally giving out on me and I couldn't do it anymore. Mm. And so it was literally out of my control. And I'm safe to say that it was probably my body's best thing that ever happened to us. Yeah. Because I've grown and my health is in, in a better position. And it was the best decision I ever made. But I knew that that life cycle, that journey of working for the government was needed to mm-hmm. help build up the confidence to know that I can do anything. If I set my mind to it and I say, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm going to do. Now, that doesn't mean every opportunity is available to me because of choices that I made. So that means that my options are smaller, but that doesn't mean my opportunity is diminished. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of like burnout and turnover in government law like that? So like your story wasn't necessarily uncommon or a surprise to the people around you? No, um, my chief, my bureau chief, my chief, uh, he he's like the door is always open for you because um, when he hired me, I never forget on my my, uh, second job interview round. He said she's going to be one of my best attorneys. She's going to be one of the best ones I've ever hired. I had I had never stepped foot in a courtroom (laughs) when he said that. But he was like, she's going to be one of the best ones. And so I worked very hard for my clients and my team. And I was so excited in the growth. And I'm still friends with a lot of my former teammates. And I I look about that time now to just thank for the growth it gave me, the confidence it gave me. And I, I, I encourage your listeners, if they are facing a dilemma on whether or not they want to enter the world of entrepreneurship to really reflect back on all the experiences that they've had and either whether good or bad, they are still helping you grow. And the best thing you can do for yourself when you enter entrepreneurship is have a good personal development plan. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't work on you, it doesn't matter how big your business get. It doesn't matter how much money you amass in that business, you're still going to fail because you don't have the tools. You don't have the skill sets to rely upon your past experiences, whether good or bad, to help you stay there. Because if you, Haley, you know, it's easy to, I mean, easy in the sense of it's not a difficult task to earn money. Mm-hmm. Earning money is simply asking for it. Yeah, definitely. You're exchanging value for value. Hey, can you write this copy for me? Yes, I can. It costs $1,000. You're going to see whether or not that value exchange is right for you. And then you're going to exchange value, meaning you're going to give me the $1,000 and I'm going to give you the marketing copy or whatever. That's just money is limitless. Mm -hmm. So your ability to earn money doesn't go away. That money is a tool, right? Mm -hmm. And when you realize that you are made of money and you have the ability to make as much as you want, your lifestyle change. How did I learn that? Through professional development. 
Yeah, I definitely, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years working on that kind of like professional development and figuring out like where my skills are and where I need to lean on others for those skills, because you're right. Like anyone can go out and say, if you give me this many dollars, I can provide you with this service. But once it gets deeper than that into growing a team, into building an actual sustainable business, like that's when kind of like the rubber hits the road and things can get difficult. Um, So speaking of difficulties, was there anything that was different between starting out on your own the first time and going back into private practice that was either more difficult than you remembered or more difficult than you were expecting? Yes, because when I was in private practice the first time, my mentor ultimately funneled the work to me. Mm. I didn't have to market. I didn't have to do any of those chat, the hustle market sale cycle, right? But the second round, that opportunity wasn't as robust as it was the first time. So that means I had to learn marketing. I had to learn pricing. I had to learn all these different things as it relates to selling legal services in a sustainable way. For instance, that special that you got when you first met me was completely and utterly non-profitable for me at all. Yeah. I have some questions about that later. (laughs) Like it was totally not profitable for me. The ability to even think about profit in that way. Mm -hmm. I just saw, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to provide this service. I know entrepreneurs need it. And um, we ran a challenge and the challenge was like, you know, sell, meet this X goal. And I'm like, oh, that's only 10 people. Boom. I got this. I, I got that in my sleep. I actually got more, but was it profitable for me? No. Mm-hmm. Would I do it again? Heck no. <laughs> so as they say, yesterday's price is not today's price. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a lot from that. And I look back on the the entrepreneur who I was when I relaunched versus the entrepreneur who I am now. And that was a growth cycle that I think we all need to go through where you learn that your pricing matters, your cost of goods matters, your time matters. All of this plays a role because we're so used to being in the factory of someone else. Mm-hmm. But when you get in the factory of you, you got to think about you have to pay for marketing. You have to set aside money for taxes. You have to have your own pay. Yes, you do need to pay yourself. I'm repeating you do need to pay yourself. You're not working for free. It's just a lot of things that you don't necessarily understand that make a business work all together, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I can also imagine that the pressure, like both financially and just like in your own like relationship with yourself is a lot greater coming from a salaried job with benefits and all oh, of that yeah. stuff to then starting out on your own. Like I, I've talked about my story a lot on this podcast, but essentially I started freelancing out of college and I graduated college with just me and my own like living expenses. And I lived a very like frugal life and I still do because my needs haven't changed and I've never gone and gotten like a cushy corporate job, Mm -hmm. but I could only imagine even if it was just a year of working a job where I make more money, Mm -hmm. then coming back and doing it on my own again is like, oh, the stakes are so much higher. My expectations are so much more like demanding. 
So I couldn't even imagine like leaving and then coming back. So major prompts to you for that. It was life or death for me. Mm -hmm. I literally didn't have any other options. And I know your listeners are probably feeling like they're they're backed in a corner and they don't really have any options. What are they going to do? You're right. As a government employee, I wasn't making a a lot of money. However, those benefits and the reason why I couldn't work was because of the health, right? So it was like a a self-feeding cycle. But once I got out of working for the government, my health drastically improved. Mm. So it was a it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I kept telling myself I can't leave this job because I need the medical benefits. But mm. the only reason why I was needing that many medical benefits was because of the job. Right. So it's like you can't see on the other side of the mountain. You don't know. And I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs we all consume a lot of material and like, this is not for me that they're just, that's just their story. That's not my Mm -hmm. story. That's not going to happen for me. It can happen for you. I'm here to tell you it can happen for you. Is it going to be, you know, butterflies and rainbows and all those things? Heck no, 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 no. You're going to look in the mirror and say, what have I done? (laughs) But then the next morning you're going to be like, it's going to be okay. Because something is going to happen that day that's going to say, I'm happy I made this choice. I'm happy Mm -hmm. I made this decision. If it's like I only have $10 in my bank account and then next thing you know, you're getting an email from a referral or somebody you met a few weeks ago say, hey, I met this person. They need to talk to you. You you can do good things. Boom, you get on the phone. The person want to pay you X amount of dollars and you had no idea where that came from. Mm -hmm. It happens. Yeah, it, it. I'm. I'm here to attest that that has happened to me, and that has given me the motivation to keep going. Awesome. This week's episode of Messy in the Middle is sponsored by Thought Leaders Collective. Are you so sick of Facebook groups? Totally over Instagram pods. Looking for a place to find community and collaboration online without all the spammy sales, bro marketers, and frankly, bullshit that comes with the online space? Then boy, do I have the thing for you. Thought Leaders Collective is for the online service provider who is ready to step into the spotlight and make a name for themselves, but is just plain tired of coming up with fresh new content for every platform every week. You just want to log on share your genius, and bask in the glow of your newfound visibility. But it can't be that easy, can it? With Thought Leaders Collective, it totally can. Weekly thought leadership prompts delivered straight to your inbox, co-working sessions so you can carve out the time to actually be visible on LinkedIn, strategic planning to get you laser-focused, and a supportive community of other online service providers who just get it. What more could you ask for? I could tell you stories of members like Rachel who had someone submit an inquiry on her site within hours of posting her first TLC prompt. Or Kira who said, Haley, this LinkedIn shit is bananas. My visibility and reach are insane. Or Meg who is a self-described LinkedIn stan now that TLC is supporting her content and community needs. Or you could go to thepropagy.com slash TLC and use code MESSY at checkout to get your first month free and see for yourself how great TLC and LinkedIn can be. That's thepropagy.com slash TLC with code M-E-S-S-Y at checkout to get your first month free. After that, it's just 27 bucks a month and you can cancel anytime, but I doubt you'll want to. Can't wait to see you on LinkedIn. 
So switching gears a little bit, as a copywriter, like if I make a mistake and a client is maybe upset about it, I can usually fix things and there's no real consequences at the end of the day. Okay. As a lawyer, I can imagine there's a lot more pressure to be perfect and not make any mistakes and have a higher, you know, quality standard for the product at every stage. What do you do when you do make a mistake like that to correct and learn for the future? And do you have any advice for other business owners when it comes to owning up to your mistakes and avoiding them in the future? Okay, so mistakes are not avoidable and they are life learning. They are learning tools. Love that. (laughs) So you are in a constant state of learner. Most overachievers are lifetime learners. So when you have an experience that didn't turn out in the way you may have expected it, it's just a learning experience. So change the way you view it. That's one. Number two, if I am in a learning experience and it's going to cost my client money and it's going, the outcome is not going to be what I wanted or they wanted it to be, I'm going to reflect and one, tell them the truth. Always be honest. Always be honest. Let them know that the outcome is not what we expected, but the, here are our options moving forward. So that means I've acknowledged the outcome and I've gone ahead and did the things I needed to do to give them the opportunity to make a decision. Mm. So oftentimes when you make a mistake and you're not honest with people, you then take away their decision-making power. And who am I to do that to you? Mm. I need to give you the option so you can always be in the decision-making chair as the client. My job is to give you information to make better informed decisions. It is not my job to make the decision for you. And ethically, I cannot. Mm. So if you take on that mindset, of I'm going to be honest. I'm going to let them know what the opportunities are for us to um, from this moment and then let them make the decision and then go from there. That's amazing. I'm going to like sound clip this and listen to it the next time I make a mistake. (laughs) It's a learning opportunity. Yeah, that's very strong advice. Um, So when you were in the government, I'm well, okay, before you were in government, when you were Mm -hmm. running your practice for the first time, were you by yourself or did you have a team supporting you or any other people supporting you? Oh, no, it was just me. It wasn't until this next round that I actually have built out a team. And that is a podcast for another day, baby. Oh, that's so for another day. Uh, Building out a team um, was one and it still is the hardest thing because it never stops. Mm -hmm. Meaning just because you sort of like had a baby. You don't just have a baby. The baby keeps growing. (laughs) And so so it's like the baby needs to eat, meaning you got to tell the baby, give the baby food. Then once the baby gets the food, the baby needs to know where the trash goes. And the Mm -hmm. baby is, it, it constantly is growing and never stops. So when managing a team, you have to be able to understand the triangle of comes with uh, delegation. So make sure you have clear and concise instructions. Make sure the person understands the instructions and then make sure the person is motivated and figure out what their motivation is to complete the task. So it's like a triangle. Yeah. Because if you see that things are not getting accomplished, the first thing you need to do is take your ego and you out of it and then say, self, what is not getting accomplished? Okay. What task did I give them? Two, 
did they understand the task? Mm -hmm. Do they have the tools to complete the task? If all these are checking out, then I need to figure out what is motivating them not. What is what is the motivation for them not completing the task or not doing it in the way that I want? Like you got to have a conversation, but you got to take personal out of it. You have to literally give them a black and white. Bobby, I wanted you to write three lines of copy as it relates to window trim. Mm-hmm. Tell me why we don't have the copy for the window trim. Yeah. Notice I didn't say, Bobby, you're incompetent. You don't know how to spell. You don't know how to write grammar. Right. Like, Bobby, your task was to give me three lines on window trim. Yeah. And I needed it by Friday. Bobby can come back and say, well, I didn't know when your deadline was. Bobby can say, you just told me to write three lines of a paragraph. So Bobby forgot about the whole window trim. Then Bobby can tell you, well, I'm just, I, I'm overwriting about window trim. Mm-hmm. So then, then you can say, okay, Bobby, what is it that you want to write about? Well, these are my passions and then this and that. Okay, Bobby, I still need my copy for the window trim, but we can discuss, bring to me a plan or a task list of things that you would feel better about and give me some examples of you writing about this. So you see how? Yeah, I know for sure for me that like, the time, the experience that I have managing my own team has showed me how many steps I skip in my own head when Mm. I'm like giving myself directions and how much more clear you need to be with other people because other people aren't in your own head. Um, I know you said that talking about your team would be an entire other episode, but if we could do like a quick overview, what does the team look like at Anderson Law? Team looks like um, we have different divisions. So we're structured from reception team, we have intake team, we have the sales team, you know, mm-hmm. and then we have production. Well, we have client experience. So you've got to meet some of the members of the client experience. Mm-hmm. And then we have, of course, production. So client experience and production run parallel. Right. Then we and have- is production like the other lawyers or... Those are the and stuff. Mm, yes, okay. ma'am. Um, the people who work on the matter. Got it. Then once your matter is completed, we move you to disengagement. And that comes comes you back to the client experience, and then we just kind of do that. So that's kind of where the team is. So it's like four members and growing right now. Okay. Well, actually, five. Well, dang. Wait a minute now. <laughs> if you include my, we buy a good seven strong. I just thought about that. Hell yeah. Good for you. (laughs) How has the experience of growing and managing your own team compared to either previous experience that you've had as a manager or just like your own expectations of having a team support your business? It's a lot because not only when you grow the personnel, you got to grow the factory to support the personnel. That it means more licensing, making sure the software can actually communicate the tools, the software mm-hmm. tools are actually beneficial to the growth of the team. That comes with a whole nother evaluation and, you know, line item that you may not thought about because you're like, hey, I need another marketing assistant to support. But that means I got to get another email address. I got to get another computer. I got to get like more storage space in the cloud. Like, maybe yeah. it's a whole process. But then to have a better hiring experience Overall, it starts back before you even put the job description. Mm -hmm. It starts 
before you really even need that person. So as a CEO, you have to think as a visionary of your business, you have to think about where we're going and where those needs are going to be before they even get there. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes we hire too late. We're hiring a panic. We hire when the need is just so overwhelming. So then that clouds your judgment when it's time for you to hire people. Because you're so trying to just get this fire, you know, put out as quickly as possible. So you're not hiring the best candidate. The candidate is not having the best onboarding experience. The candidate does not have the understanding of what is really needed for them Mm -hmm. to be an A person of the team. So B, you need to have clear definition of what is an A person? What is a B person? What is a C person? What is a D? What is an F? And have clear defining language so that person will know, hey, I'm operating as a B player right now, or I'm operating as an F player right now. Mm -hmm. So then that way you set up, you know, like your review period, and then you take your ego out of it, you take personal out of it. And this is a parameter that they have to operate in. Yeah. Well, it's also too, like when you're hiring reactively, it's like you're bringing someone in on their first day of like firefighter training to an entire building, like up in flames. And you're like, here's a water gun, have fun. And then like you're setting them up to fail from the beginning. And when you're able to hire with more, you know, future minded things, you're able to give the person the time they need to get acclimated and figure out how to do things right and ask the right questions compared to just like you're in panic mode. So they're in panic mode and like they're just not able to ever meet your expectations because your expectations were unreasonable. Completely and utterly. Mm -hmm. You spot on. And just think about that. Firefighters go through weeks and months and months Mm -hmm. of training just to know, you know, the type of equipment and why they have on that equipment Mm -hmm. and why that equipment is important. This is before they even touch anything of the equipment. They got to learn why they need this type of equipment Mm -hmm. and, and the history. Like, think about that. Think about your last hire. Did you really tell them the reason why you started this business? Did you tell them what the ultimate North Star is, so then they can keep that in mind when they make decisions? Probably not. (laughs) My last hire I did. My first hire, not so much. (laughs) And I'm sure your uh, first hire, in comparison to your last hire, your last hire is performing probably better early on versus your first hire. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. So um, pivoting again a little bit to some more actionable advice for our listeners, Um, I would love to pick your brain a little bit about trademarks and IP. I know that they're very important to you and in general. Um, I mentioned at the top of the show that we met because essentially another lawyer and business coach scared me into getting my company name trademarked. And I was just like, yes, okay, Nikosha, do it for me. Thank you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now that the trademark has been approved, obviously I'm happy. But I can't help but wonder if I actually needed to go through it in such a panic when I did, or if I could have waited, or if I could have, you know, done something different. So can you provide some advice or guidelines for our listeners to judge if pursuing a trademark is the right point at, you know, what part of their business? Okay. So I get this a lot. And it's, of course, it's a situational and depends on where you are in your mm-hmm. business, but in a general sense of the way, 
Can you afford to lose it? Like the name of your company, you mean? Can you afford to lose it? How would that make you feel? Do you have the money for a rebrand? Right. If someone started taking money based upon the blood, sweat, and tears that you invested in your business at your kitchen table or at your makeshift desk or at the library or that coffee shop that you go buy one cup of coffee and spend six hours in, (laughs) if you answered no to any of those questions, Mm -hmm. then it's time for you to secure a protection tool. Mm -hmm. Well, what, I guess protection tool options are there? Like if the name of your business is your LLC or is a DBA under a different LLC, like are there legal associations that you can have with a name that aren't necessarily a trademark protection? No. No? You can get trademark at a state level. You can do state level if you don't want to make the investment into a federal level. Mm -hmm. You can do that. Or you can make the investment to make sure. So if you're in the beginning stages, this is the line of protection tools. You may want to have a non-disclosure agreement. You may want to have a, definitely want to have a services agreement outlining what you will and won't do. Then from there, um, you start getting rating some capital. You need to start thinking about, is this contract really protecting most of the aspects of my business or all the aspects of my business? And you get what you pay for. So don't just think going online and getting one of those little $50 template subscriptions or whatever is going to get you by. In the beginning, yes, but you get the amount you invest mm-hmm. is the legal services you get. And that's the legal other protection that you will have. Then from there, when you start getting brand recognition and people start remembering you for the particular service, then for sure you need to move into federal trademark protection and make sure that that is what you need to do. And then copyright protection, because people always focus on trademarks now. That's like the new hot Ferrari Mm -hmm. in business. But you need to also focus on copyright. Copyright is that old, dirty scotch that you touch every now and again, but it's just as powerful. Mm -hmm. Because with copyright protection, it protects the actual project itself. So the aspects of your graphics, the written work, and all those things, and the sound recordings, your podcast, Mm -hmm. all those things. But trademark protection protects the source identifier for the project. So. So if you want to protect the source, meaning you don't want people to know someone else as a source for this particular brand or name, then you need to start considering some form of trademark protection. So overall, if you don't want to rebrand, but there's other aspects of that. It's not just when should I start considering it. You technically need to consult with me before you even launch. And the reason why I say that is because you may have a name that someone else already has, mm-hmm. but it's not in your sphere or universe. So you think you're the new person on the block with this name. In actuality, you're not. Mm-hmm. And I've had to unfortunately break many of people's hearts and let them know that there's actually another business with this name. And no, they didn't have a website. And no, they weren't on social media. But guess what they did? They had a trademark. Mm. So it is so important that you involve the expertise in the beginning. And even if you don't move forward with it, at least you Mm -hmm. got some knowledge. It is so much cheaper for you to pay me to do a a clearance search versus you get your your feelings hurt when you got to go get a rebrand. Right. So if someone has decided that they want to pursue a trademark, because it sounds like kind of once you have your stuff 
planned out at least, you should start pursuing a trademark. The next step, maybe in addition to consulting with a lawyer or before they consult with the lawyer, is deciding if they want to DIY the application or just hire someone to do it for them. Can you talk about maybe some of the pros and cons of DIY versus a done-for-you trademark? Of course. Uh, This is a government agency. So the government does things in a way that the average, quote-unquote, the average citizen can be able to funnel their way through. But if you're not going to file your own tax return, I definitely don't recommend you filing your own trademark. I say it like this. I know what I know because I went to school and learned. Mm -hmm. You know what you know because you went to school or got the learning time to do it. Yes, you can do a trademark yourself. I encourage it wholeheartedly. Go navigate it. But you'll come call me (laughs) as soon as you get that thing called an office action because you don't know how to respond to it. You don't know the first thing, what they're asking you for, and if you're going to struggle. I always tell people over 60% of the trademark applications that are filed with an attorney get registration versus the 20-something percent of people who do IY. Mm-hmm. Where you want to be on this scale. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I think even like when I was deciding if I wanted to have someone do it for me or do it myself, I like went to the website and was just like, absolutely not. <laughs> this absolutely. is not, not my wheelhouse. <laughs> no, because you don't, you, most people don't know the first thing between classes. They don't know the type of proof you need to have. They don't know the various applications there are because there's more than one. Mm-hmm. They don't know. It, it, you don't know what you don't know. And I'm not saying that you can't learn because if you are uh, have the energy and time to devote, to sit there and learn all this material, then kudos to you. But a smart business owner and the one that's on the trajectory for growth understands that it's cheaper for me to pay an expert so I can go do something else and make mm-hmm. more money in my business. Yeah, definitely. So we already talked about how my strategy for hiring a trademark attorney was panic and pick the first person who had a price that didn't scare me. Um, But if someone were to say, take a more strategic approach to hiring an attorney, obviously I would recommend you. I've had a great experience. Thank you. Um, But what are some maybe red flags to look for or green flags to look for when looking for a trademark attorney? Price is definitely a concern of mine. Cheaper is not always better. Mm -hmm. Cheaper doesn't always mean that you're going to get exceptional service because they could be a trademark application meal, meaning they just advertise low cheap prices Mm -hmm. and they just get as many people in. They don't do clearance searches. They're not asking you why you're doing your business. They're not trying to get good understanding as to any of those things. They're just essentially like navigating the website for you. Exactly. Exactly. So just to tie it all back together, red flags is you want to just ask them how long they've been practicing. What is their normal success rate? Because you will have an understanding that no application is guaranteed. Mm -hmm. A major red flag is a provider who shares with you, hey, I can guarantee you'll get a registration. Mm. Run, run far, 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 far away. Price is definitely not an indication of the best because you, as I always explain, you get what you pay for and you want to make sure that, yes, you're at navigating that on the level of which you can. I don't want you to overextend yourself in your business thinking that I'm going to pay $5,000 and so I'm going to get a trademark because that that could happen. You could, mm-hmm. 
But you just need to be an informed person and ask them, you know, how long you've been doing this? What is your normal success rate? How would you handle if we got an office action? So if you say buzzwords, they'll say, oh, Mm -hmm. you've been doing some research and then go from there. So be an informed citizen. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. If someone were to try and understand, like, I know when I was looking into it, I was like, I have no idea what a trademark is supposed to cost. I know what my business coach's lawyer charges. And then I wasn't comfortable with that price. And then I found your price and I was like, this is fine. But we've already discussed that, you know, the price that I paid was not a sustainable price for you. What is a ballpark, like green flag figure that someone could expect to pay for a process done right? I'm not thinking about like, you know, Coca-Cola probably pays like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to trademark everything, but you know, a good lawyer. It kind of depends. I mm-hmm. I know that's the most lawyer answer ever. Yeah. And I expected that answer, but it depends because I don't want to give a figure out there because I don't know people's situations. And I know some practitioners do things drastically different than mm-hmm. the way I do it. Some practitioners won't will let you file an application without doing a clearance search. So the price may be cheaper. I don't do that. So I have different phases in my process. So the price range can vary. It can Mm -hmm. vary based upon how many things you're trademarking. It can vary based upon where you are. You could be using the trademark already, or you could be intending, meaning you want to use it in the future. Mm -hmm. That will vary your price. So it just kind of depends, but anything that's nine ninety nine, run. <laughs> so for like a simple, straightforward trademark, you should expect at least a four figure investment. I would say a four figure investment, okay. most yeah. definitely. That's a good a good reference to think about because I know, yeah, you just like some things are an absolute mystery. Like I have to get part of my backyard fixed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that will cost me hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. Like I simply do not know because it is not in my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of us, that's our experience with legal matters. So Most definitely, knowing a four-figure investment is a good place to start. Upper four. Upper four. Okay. That's a, <laughs> even better. <laughs> um. I have one more super silly question and then we'll wrap things up. I love silly questions. I grew up with a father in law enforcement and he hates any type of like procedural crime drama because of how inaccurate they are. Oh God, yes. Do you have any favorite like law dramas or absolutely like super frustrating you can't believe people think this is real law dramas that are like your guilty pleasures so the one that i actually liked even though they did go to court rapidly fast was the good wife yes i'm watching the good fight right now so i did enjoy the i'm not watching the good fight but i did watch the good wife and i did even they went to court so fast and Mm -hmm. that is so not real i mean when i say court i mean trial right that is so inaccurate. I mean, completely and utterly inaccurate. The one that I despise the most that most people have drawn to is how to get away with murder. I hate that. <laughs> I was like, oh, this should be good because I was a Grey's Anatomy snob and yeah. like, all that. So I'm like, oh, this should be good. I was in Shondaland. The first episode, I turned it off. <laughs> Probably if you were a doctor, you would have hated Grey's then too. Yeah. Yeah, probably so. 
with the first episode of How to Get Away with Murder, and I was like, this is hearsay. You're not impeaching properly. You cannot ask that on direct. What is she doing? These are cross questions. Click. (laughs) So if you needed a TV lawyer to help you out, you would not want Viola Davis, but you might want whoever plays the lawyer in The Good Wife. Um, so Viola Davis is awesome. So as an actor, maybe so, because she could probably <laughs> get away with some stuff and shout out to her. But Margarita. Viola, if you're listening, come hey, on the pod. Hey, girl. <laughs> um, but I think her name is, I cannot say her last name properly, and I don't want to mispronounce it, but I believe her Margarita, Margalise, she was also in the TV drama ER. Mm-hmm. And so she was in love with my first husband, George Clooney. And so they had a home again, off again. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked her. Mm-hmm. I liked that. I liked that show. Even Amazing. though some of it was false. I mean, faulty false. But I still enjoyed it. Amazing. I always like mean to ask when I have people on the show, I always mean to ask like these silly pop culture questions and I always oh. forget. And I was so happy that I remembered this time. Me too. Make me uh, want to figure out where some old episodes of The Good Wife is. Uh, if you have Paramount Plus, they're on Paramount Plus. Stay less. <laughs> uh, Nikosha, thank you so much for joining me today. I had an absolute blast learning more about IP, and I am so excited to get to listen back to this later. I've got some motivational quotes written down. We are come on, motivational quotes, ready to go. Um, so for our listeners, where can they find you? How can they give you money? And what do you have going on to promote today? One, love the question on how to give me money. So please send all your dollars to, no, I'm joking. That was a complete joke. Florida bar. That was not a solicitation. That was a joke. <laughs> so I am on Instagram at Esquire44. You can um, visit my website, which is Anderson Law FL. Dot com because I have the most common name in America. And I You're to talking to a Johnson, so. <laughs> you get it. Uh, so AndersonLawFL.com. And I am on Facebook as my first and last name. So you can always find me there. And uh, I'm on Al Gore's internet. I have the only name, Nikosha. You type it in, I will pop up. <laughs> Amazing. And we will have all of those links in the show notes. So you don't have to worry about typing it all in. You can just go and click away. Yes. Thank you again for being here. And to our listeners, thank you so much for sticking around. This has been Messy in the Middle, and I will talk to you all again soon. Hey there. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Or more likely, thanks for leaving your phone just far enough away that you can't get to it in time to skip past this part. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and leave a review. And shout out to my guests for joining me, my dog for not barking, my editor Chrissy for doing her thing, and my friend Devin for letting me use his music. You can check out all of the links for the podcast, anything mentioned in today's episode, and the amazing people who helped me put on the show in the show notes. Bye!